the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So last week we spoke about Christ as the light and the truth, and how he is the one who exposes the reality of life to us. Okay? And I want to just mention one final comment about this specific concept before we move on to the rest of this passage. Okay, so we're in John 3, 18 to 21. Okay, and uh, we already covered this whole passage, but uh, at the end of this passage when he says, everyone practicing evil hates the light, and doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God. Okay, so again, Christ is the one who reveals the truth. He reveals reality to us. Now, how does this apply to us on a personal level? Okay, when you think of growing in your relationship with Christ, it's always a matter of that closeness and this, uh, this unity that we try to develop. And the closer we get to God, the more we see ourselves for who we truly are, because His light reveals the truth of our soul. His light reveals uh, the reality of who we really are, the good and the bad and everything in between, okay? And the only way that we can actually come to have any sense of true identity, like a real identity, is by our presence in the light of Christ, okay? Whenever you talk about uh, finding yourself and uh, finding your identity in the secular sense of what that typically means it's always about like exploring different options and experimenting and uh, I'm sure you hear now with how confusing it is for children about their identity and peer pressure and the media and you name it okay but even aside from all of that secular influence I think that in the spiritual life we don't really understand what it means to see the reality of our life, our identity, as we truly exist in the light of Christ in a spiritual way. Okay? So when you think of like examining yourself, preparing for confession, when you're repenting, we always think of it like this process of examining what I've done and the good and the bad. And like we go through this checklist, like it's almost this analytical process, even in a spiritual sense, which is not the case at all. Okay, so one verse I I like to keep in mind in the end of Psalm 138, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Okay, so this is the standard for us that God just reveals to us who we are whenever we stand in His presence. Okay? Um... St. Paul makes this very clear when he speaks of 
Christ as the light, the one who manifests the truth to us. In the letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, he says, All things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore it is said, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Okay? So, that's a very important concept to keep in mind, because when we pray, when we examine ourselves, we prepare for confession, it's not just this sort of psychological, analytical process. Okay? It's about just entering into the presence of God. God, reveal to me what you desire to expose. Okay? It's really that simple without having to complicate it with this psychological process, which uh, I, I think we often do, even though it may be unintentional. But this is always how I thought of preparing for confession growing up. Like I have to sit there and analyze my life, which is, like, I think actually dangerous because it, it can be more harmful. Not only does it fail to reveal the truth to us, but it can actually cause more confusion. Okay? So that's just a, an important concept to keep in mind when we think of uh, this last verse here in verse 21, that he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they've been done in God. If you really want to see your deeds and you want to see them clearly, then you just put your soul in the presence of his love and his truth and his light will expose that to you. Yes, Andrew. <laughs> so I guess the source of inquiry, like whenever like you're trying to ask yourself questions and examine yourself, should not be your own analytical mind, but God himself revealing to us. So prayer is more about like putting ourself in God's presence as opposed to just like going through this checklist and analyzing and this whole psychological process. Um, I, I, I think so long as we, we approach it prayerfully, then we're safe. It's not just me examining myself all on my own. There's a huge difference. So I don't want it to seem like this abstract process whenever I say just pray and put yourself in God's presence. But there's a process of examination that is isolated from God and there's a process of examination that is in God's presence. Okay, Because God will reveal to me what's necessary for me to know and sometimes there may be even less than what I would think about on my own because maybe God is guarding me from uh, falling into despair whenever I really realize like I really have a lot of sins or, or shortcomings in my life. So His grace always reveals just enough. And that's why when we approach God with a, a prayerful um, sort of examination, then we depend on His light to reveal whatever He feels is 
necessary for us to see. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. That prayer is, is perfect. At the end of Psalm 138, when David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's perfect. It's just, God, you tell me what you want me to notice. Instead of me just digging and analyzing and this whole psychological process. Okay? Alright. So, we actually have to make time to do that. Make time to see if our deeds have been done in God. Right? God is the standard. His truth is the standard. So, the way... Christ reveals to us the life of perfection is the standard. If they are done in Christ, okay, not the standard of the world, not to see if my deeds are socially acceptable. And again, that's why it's not this sort of analytical process. I know you guys are flipping through your Bible. It's probably Psalm 139 because the Septuagint is, uh, is different. So it's 138 in the Masoretic, or 139 in the Septuagint? Do you find it? I'll help you, I'll help you out. <laughs> anyway, so, our standard is what Christ reveals to us, because a lot of times, what's acceptable, according to the social norms, are totally different from what's acceptable in Christ, okay, or, or the perfection in Christ. So th- that last little phrase that they've been done in God is, is critical, okay? All right, now we'll get into the next few verses. We'll go to verses 22 to 26, all right? After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan... To whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Okay, so there's a lot there. But there's basically a little overlap between the ministry of John and Christ. Okay, so as the ministry of John is ending, the ministry of Christ is beginning. In the Gospel of Mark, there's actually a sharp distinction, and there's a beautiful verse in uh, the first chapter, verse 14. I'll just uh, share with you this verse, because St. Mark wants to emphasize this transition. So he says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So in like the very same verse, there's the exit of the voice, the 
voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one that prepared the way for Christ, and the entrance of the Word Himself. So there's this beautiful little contrast where you see John's imprisoned, and the one who takes his place is now beginning his ministry, right? In the Gospel of John, we see that the focus is about this process in which John is leaving or the ministry of John is ending and then the ministry of Christ is beginning. Okay, so that's why you'll see this little overlap with both of them baptizing at the same time. Okay? But of course, uh, Christ himself wasn't baptizing and we'll get to that in the beginning of the next chapter. Okay? There's a dispute and it's not really clear what this dispute is all about, aside from the fact that it revolves around the rites of purification and baptism. Maybe they're comparing what John's doing and what Christ is doing. Uh, but it's an argument about the rites of purification. What does uh, the law of Moses say, and why is John doing this? Why are other sects that were baptizing maybe doing it differently? Because there were different groups baptizing at this time. Okay, so the Essenes, for example, were one of the groups that would baptize. So this wasn't foreign for the Jews. All right? So in verse 26, kind of transition from the beginning of that section to this last verse. John's disciples are basically saying, dude, Jesus is stealing your thunder. Like, how do you feel about that? They're basically telling him, like, you're just in the shadow, right? So, how do you think John felt about this? Yeah, so for starters, they're like... The, did you not get that he's, he's the reason I'm here? <laughs> right? So they totally missed that. And we'll see how this doesn't phase him because he's not offended by people going to Christ. Okay? And of course, they say he is baptizing, although technically he's not. And again, we're going to get into this in the following chapter, but why does John the Evangelist say, He is baptizing and all are coming to him. Behold, he is baptizing. When in fact, like you could jump straight to it in the very next chapter. See that in chapter 4, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. Okay? So, why did John say... He is baptizing. Well, they are, they are right about this. That he is baptizing. Okay? But there's a little caveat to it. Okay? So, you remember whenever... Jesus appeared to St. Paul on the road to Damascus. 
what, what did he tell St. Paul? He asked him a question. Why are you persecuting me? Okay, did, did he ever even see Jesus before, let alone persecute him? His people, right? Because he was persecuting the Christians. So how is it that Christ is telling St. Paul, why are you persecuting me? So clearly there's an identification with his disciples, right? To, to, to persecute the disciples of Christ is to persecute Christ himself. Okay? Because the disciples are an extension of Christ. They're like his hands and his feet. Okay? So just as Christ is identifying with his disciples whenever he tells St. Paul, why are you persecuting me? The disciples are identifying with Christ as, as if he is the one baptizing whenever they go out to baptize. Right? Because they are an extension of his work. So what they do is a reflection of Christ. Because they're his own students. Okay? Now, aside from like the nuances of like whether they really represent Christ or you know Christ identifying with his disciples or not i think this goes a long way for us as christians right because christ is clearly telling us there's a sense of solidarity between the the teacher and the student right between the master and the disciple so we are in a sense an embodiment of Him. We are a, a representative of Christ. Every single one of us. Okay, so that's a, a big concept to, to really think about and, and to implement because we're not just going out into the world like doing whatever um, satisfies us but we are an extension of his work and to follow his own life. So that's what it means to be a disciple. That's why he says here that he is baptizing and all are coming to him. All right. We're going to get into um, this, this temptation that the the disciples are are challenging saint john the baptist with okay because there's a serious temptation here they're telling him everybody's leaving you like clearly this guy's better than you because he's got a big following like he's got 10 times more likes on his posts than you like a lot of people are going to him like you're just yesterday's news okay so the temptation here is a temptation of jealousy or envy. Okay? And this is big for servants. This is a huge temptation for anyone who's responsible for doing the work of God. Okay? And for John, although he was rooted in the truth, rooted in discipline and humility, this is still a challenge for him because he dedicated his whole life for this fasting and praying out in the wilderness. And now, like, he's taking some 
pretty nasty shots from his own disciples. Right? So this is a pretty big temptation. There's a lot of layers to this, so I just want to spend a little bit of time to talk about how this applies to us in our daily life, especially for the servants that are responsible for the ministry that God gave us. All right? What happens when envy comes knocking on your door? What happens? Like, what are you tempted to do? In what way? What does the temptation lead to? Anger. Anger is a big one. Okay. Try to match that person. Very good. Perfect. So there can be this sense of despair because like, okay, I quit. Like, you know, they just beat me. So I'm nothing, right? So it's important to identify all of this because... All of these passions may stir inside of us. And unless we can identify their source, then it's hard for us to truly repent. It's hard for us to eliminate this demon. Okay? When we're tempted with this envy or this jealousy, we either fall into self-pity or anger or frustration or bitterness, or resentment, or even worse, we become more greedy. Okay? So, let's, let's look at the, the depressing side of, of envy. Okay? What's whenever like, you're filled with this self-pity, someone's doing better than you, and like, the thought of someone else having what you don't have, makes you feel less significant or worthless, right? So what happens? You just fall into this sense of despair or you play the victim card, right? And this, this happens a lot. Like we might not really notice it, but it happens. But in this, this, this depressed state, the soul's actually puffed up, okay? It's elevated. Why? Like it's elevated with a sense of arrogance. Exactly. Okay, so the real root here is pride. Self-pity comes from pride because the person says, I deserve more. Okay? I should be entitled to what that person has and now I don't have it. Right? So it's all about me and what I feel I deserve. Okay, when the reality is different, I feel like I deserve this, I feel like I'm entitled to this, and when in reality I don't have that, then I'm consumed with this self-pity or this despair. Okay, and a lot of times that's what leads to depression. We often think that depression comes from just low self-esteem. But in reality, it's more often a product of pride. It's hard to tell someone who's depressed, think about if there's a little bit of pride causing your despair. 
or your depression. But that's, that's the truth. That's why we're often sad. Not all the time. It could be for other reasons. We could be depressed for other reasons. But it's very often from our pride. Okay, now, if you have a strong, stubborn will or a stubborn personality, you don't fall into that pity, this uh, despair. Like, you actually get more frustrated and you want to do something about it, you know? And that's where the anger and the bitterness and the resentment comes in, or you get more greedy, okay? How does envy lead to greed? Exactly. Just like what Jean was saying earlier. Okay, and this is a big temptation for someone in John's shoes. Okay? When we don't have what others have, like we want to match it. Like, oh, I got to double down. I got to do more. I got to like compete. Right? So we get more greedy. And by the way, like this is what the sin of covetousness is all about. When we're tempted with envy, what we want to do is covet what that person has. Okay, so keep that in mind because we have to have that sense of awareness in our spiritual life. A spiritual life is filled with spiritual warfare. There's a a beautiful book by C.S. Lewis called Screwtape Letters that he talks about all of these temptations and how one pitfall leads to another. And it totally changed my life when I started to notice like, how the spiritual warfare works in, in our life. Okay? But keep that in mind because in this case, when the disciples of John are telling him, okay, everyone's going to this guy, everyone's going to Christ, he could have said, well, actually, I need to collect a few more disciples. I need to match what he has. Right? But instead, what did he say? Good, go. (laughs) Like, that's great. Okay? There's, um, there's always a struggle with this for servants. Because the youth can get attached to servants. And I'll be the first to admit that it, it feels great to have servants um, or other youth or whatever confide in you and trust you and thank you for whatever you're doing. And, and with that comes the temptation to just like hold on to this, this service that God is giving you. And if it's not actual people, it's whatever ministry that God has asked you to, to do, okay? Whenever God maybe wants to designate a, serv- a service to somebody else, like a servant that really invested in that, like may be very frustrated, right? Um, remember just... Uh, a few months ago, I was coaching the girls for basketball, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I love coaching, and 
Um, it, it started to get a little complicated after the start of the season. And, um, and because like, there's a lot of drama and stuff, so I said, okay, you know, I'm just going to step back. You know, the girls are struggling with like a priest wearing two different hats, like as a coach and as a priest at the same time. So, you know, they have other great, wonderful coaches. Like, I don't need to add to the mess, okay? So I stepped back. And then what I noticed is several girls came to me the very same night that I, I told them, like, you know, it's better to just step away. And he said, you know, Abuna, I'm not going to play anymore. Like, if you're not coaching, I'm not playing. I said, well, <laughs> if you stop playing, then I basically failed you as a coach. Because <laughs> if I've taught you anything, it's to put your whole heart into the work that you're doing. And not to just confide in a specific person. Right? You're, pray, you're, you're playing this game for your team, for your teammates, to put your whole heart into the sport and to develop that fellowship with each other. Okay? But it, it happens a lot in the service in any other area as well. Not just basketball, but in life. Okay, so a lot of times the solution, whenever we're in this situation, is to remove ourselves so that the, the players or the disciples or the youth, whoever it may be, are not stumbled by the, the attention that we might have. And this is precisely what John does. Okay? And not only does he remove himself, he says, okay, he must increase, I must decrease. But St. John Chrysostom goes so far as to say, this is the reason that God allowed his death. So, like, totally eliminated the confusion right there. Okay, John's not even there for you to try to follow anymore. Okay, now it's all about Christ. Okay, but John was willing to do that. Okay, he already sacrificed his honor, his reputation, everything before he was literally imprisoned and beheaded. Okay, but this is what we have to do as servants. He must increase and I must decrease. I have to remove myself whenever my position is a stumbling block. It's a very good point. We're, and at the end of this passage, he talks about how that God does not give the Spirit by measure in relation to the Son. Okay, because everything belongs to the Son. But that's not the case for us. God gave each one of us a measure of the Spirit, a measure of the gifts and the virtues and the talents that we have to serve. And like you said, when we recognize that, then we say, okay, what matters is the expansion of God's kingdom. And whenever this person is 
doing God's work, then I'm glad that this service is growing, even though it's not to my credit. But we have to definitely recognize that. Okay. Now, the solution, like we said, for, for God to increase, for me to decrease, which we'll get to in a little bit, is basically for, for humility to destroy this temptation of envy. Because whether this envy or this jealousy causes us to be depressed, to fall into this self-pity, or to be angry or resentful or greedy, it's all a matter of pride causing those emotions. Okay, so it's defeated by, by humility. Okay, so St. Augustine comments on John the Baptist's humility. He says, this is precisely why he was considered the greatest among the prophets. He says, the, among those born of women, there was not a man born that is greater than John the Baptist. Okay, so St. Augustine says, John's extraordinary humility is a testimony of his greatness. His humility is the testimony of his greatness. After all, he was so great that people could think he was the Christ. That's how great he was. People were mistaking him for the Christ. John could have taken advantage of the people's mistake. And he would have had to work, and, and he would not have had to work hard to persuade them that he was the Christ. Because those who heard and saw him had already brought this without his saying it. There was no need for him to sow the seeds of the error. All he would have to do would be to confirm it. It's very easy for him to say, okay, yeah, I'll go with it. <laughs> okay? So it's here that John's greatness is supremely brought to our notice. That when he could be thought of to be the Christ, he preferred to bear witness to the Christ, to bring him to our notice. He preferred to humble himself rather than to be taken for the Christ. Okay, it's beautiful. That's why St. John the Baptist, his icon is right next to the icon of the Pantocrator. Okay, you look at the iconostasis in the church, he's the very next person. Okay, so after St. Mary, it's St. John. All right? Pope Krillus always says, let us disappear that the glory of God may appear. Okay, this is precisely what we have to do as servants, to follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist. Okay, but that means that our greed and our desires and like all of those selfish inclinations have to disappear. Okay? That means we have to be content with what God gave us. Right? Just like what Yusuf was saying. God gave someone this, God gave someone that, God gave me whatever I have, and I have to be content with that because it's according to His love and His wisdom that He gave me what I have. St. Cyril says, we too should be content with what we've received rather than striving for more. Okay? Comments or questions before we move on to the last section in chapter 3. Okay. John answered and said, 
We're picking up from verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God doesn't give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. All right. So we'll try to move quickly and hopefully conclude this uh, chapter today. In these first couple of verses, verses 27 and 28 in the section we read, St. John Chrysostom says that John the Baptist's answer implies that Christ is God. Okay, that's very clear. He's making it very clear to them, this is God. And so, it is Christ who deserves the honor he receives, and he admits his role as a servant, despite what his disciples claim to the contrary. Okay, that's very obvious, yes, and that's been the theme of everything that St. John the Baptist has been saying. Okay, and then when he says that a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven, he's admitting that as a man, whatever he's doing, whatever he has, whatever he's delivering to the people is a product of what he's received from God. He's just a man. Okay. So St. Augustine says, John is admitting that he's just a man and can only give what he has received from heaven. It's very simple, very basic, and this is what keeps us in check. This is why St. John had this humility. Like, to be considered the forerunner, to be considered the voice of one crying in the wilderness, like, those are big titles. But through it all, he would think of himself as nothing. Like, I'm all of that because God is doing all of that through me. Okay, it's an important concept to keep our pride in check. No matter what we do, no matter what God accomplishes in us. And this is how all of the saints lived. Um, this is how St. Pope Krullus lived his life, even though he was... Uh, an amazing saint and he performed so many miracles like you would see him like on the altar always in tears because he considered himself as nothing he he considered himself a, a sinner in need of repentance so how is it that this person that would prophesy and cast out demons and heal the sick like be in tears while he's praying, it's because he considered himself as nothing, and whatever, whatever good that he did was a product of God's work through him. Okay? Any comments or questions before we move on to the next verse? Uh, 
Okay. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Now, there's only one bridegroom, and that's Christ. Okay, and that's what St. John is saying. I'm not the bridegroom. It's Christ. He is the bridegroom. Okay? And what does that make me? I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Okay? In a sense, he's saying, I'm like the best man. Okay? Which may seem like, okay, you just got demoted from the bridegroom to the best man. (laughs) Right? It would be a whole lot better to consider yourself the bridegroom. But to John, that's more than enough. To John, that's enough to say that this joy of mine is fulfilled. So how can I be envious when I'm considered to be the friend of the bridegroom? I'm not worthy to be the friend of the bridegroom. That's a privilege I don't deserve. Okay? Nevertheless, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm, I'm like the best man. So there's no way I can be envious. Because, like there's no competition. Right? We're in the same wedding. Okay? The same celebration. It's the same feast. Okay? And this is what we have to consider as a Christian body, that it's not one servant compared to another, or even one denomination compared to another. But we're all friends of the bridegroom. Okay, now, how is it that St. John the Baptist is overwhelmed with joy? Not only does he lack any sense of envy, but he's overwhelmed with joy. It's because there's a lot to this role as the friend of the bridegroom. Okay, so I want to share with you what one scholar says about this, and it'll really put it in perspective. So the bridegroom's friend here may be the shoshpin, sometimes compared with our modern best man. A highly honored position that involved much joy. The shoshbins of brides of a bride and groom functioned as witnesses in the wedding, normally contributed financially to the wedding, and would be intimately concerned with the success of the wedding. So pretty much a lot like our modern day version of the best man, right? The texts rejoice with joy is emphatic. Joy was so important at weddings that many later rabbis insisted that a bridegroom, the shoshpins, and the guests were free from most daily prayers and the obligation of living in tabernacles during the Feast of Sukkoth, or the Feast of Booth. To illustrate the importance God attached to the joy of weddings, Jewish teachers reported Jewish teachers reported that God himself acted as Adam's shushpin, his best man. Okay, so that's how significant this role was. It even relates to how we would consider God serving in this, this wedding between Adam and Eve. Okay? And so it was filled with, that's why John says, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Like, 
this was like you weren't allowed to be bitter. Like even the obligations and the discipline that you would have for the, all of the religious rules were exempt. Okay? Because right now, you rejoice with those who rejoice. And that's what it was for John. Okay, so do we think of ourselves as the friends of the bridegroom? It's a very important question to ask. Okay? And, and do we rejoice with the bridegroom? Do we serve as like the best man? The best man has to do a lot of work, by the way. Okay, he has to make sure it's all going well. <laughs> okay, he's, he's working, but at the same time, it's a celebration. And so for, for each one of us to be like John, to be like the best man, is to be filled with joy. Like first and foremost, to be joyful, because like who wants a bitter best man? Like, like you, don't, you, don't, you don't go to a wedding all grumpy, especially when you're the best man. Okay? So we have to be joyful regardless of the tragedies in our life, regardless of what we're going through. We're in a wedding, and we have to remember that. And then we serve with joy. Okay? We fulfill our responsibilities with joy. We care for the arrangements in the wedding with joy. All right. Now, notice the irony in in this in this verse that we just read that he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So, how is John identifying himself? As the one who stands and hears him. Okay? Now he's the one just standing listening. When this whole time he was what? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Okay? So, there's a complete flip. Okay? The one who was talking about God is now silent. And then he's listening to the one who is the word of God, Christ himself, who is speaking. Okay? Henry Nowen says something beautiful about silence. And uh, if you care to reflect on this, there's a beautiful book called um, The Way of the Heart. Okay? And he says, A word with power is a word that comes out of silence. A word that bears fruit is a word that emerges from the silence and returns to it. So, John embodies this because his whole life, even though he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, was really filled with silence. Like, who is he talking to in the wilderness? (laughs) He was silent. He was listening. And then for like a few days... He says a few words, and then now he's what? Just silent listening. So it's like the one who prepared the way for the Lord, the one who is considered the voice, is like wrapped in this silent sandwich. 
like the buns, the top and the bottom are silence. <laughs> okay, and that's beautiful to consider when we think of our Christian walk. Okay, that has to be enveloped in silence. All right. So, let's get into the last couple of verses and then maybe next week we'll start with uh, he must increase but I must decrease because that's, that's a big concept to, to really talk about. Okay, but the last couple of verses will just take uh, a very little amount of time. In, in verse 31, we can, we can basically identify like a transition from what St. John the Baptist is saying to St. John the Evangelist's narration here. Okay, so uh, the, the end of this uh, little monologue by St. John the Baptist kind of ends with verse 30. And then from verse 31, we have St. John the Baptist, uh, we have St. John the Evangelist's narration. Okay, so John's affirming the divinity and the authority of Christ. Okay, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Okay, so everyone else is a mere man except for God, except for Christ who is above all, who is from above. Okay, the next verse tells us that what Christ is giving us is purely authentic. Okay, in verse 32 he says, what he has seen and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony or we can say yet no one receives his testimony. So what Christ has received and heard, what he has seen, what he has heard, what he has received is exactly what he's transmitting to us. He's giving us like the unaltered, untainted version of the truth. He's giving us like a raw, authentic form of whatever belongs to God. Because it naturally belongs to Him. Okay? Think of like all of different types of wires that we have. Um, a lot of mechanical engineers know about this stuff. Like there's, there's different like conduction and uh, different quality of, of wires that you can use. Right? And the higher the quality is, like the less resistance in the signal or whatever it is you're transmitting. Okay? In Christ, like there's just a perfect channel. Right? So whatever he has seen and heard is translated to us without any impediments. Right? Because he has preserved that authentic truth in himself because he is the truth. All right. In verse 34, he goes on to say, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Okay, so it kind of ties into verse 32. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Not that the Father spoke to the Son and the Son is relaying those words to us, 
But he is the mind of God. He is the logos or, or the thought of God himself. So there is no separation. All right? So stick with me for just another minute and we'll conclude this whole chapter aside from verse 13 and we'll get to that next week. Okay. In verse 33, whoever receives the testimony of Christ certifies that this is true or affirms that this is true. Okay, the, the actual translation is to say, sets his seal on this, that God is true. So if you receive the testimony of Christ, if you actually accept what God is telling you, then you certify the truth of God. Okay? And to certify or to affirm this truth is to set your seal on this truth, to set your seal on this word. Okay? If you think of how a king would would seal a letter or an envelope or any sort of document. He does that by like stamping his signet ring. Okay? So it, it means I, I am putting my own reputation on this letter, on this document. I certify that it's true. I set my seal on it. I'm putting my own reputation and my word on it. Okay? So that's what we do when we recognize the truth of God, the truth that the church has preserved, the way of life, the way that we should walk throughout this spiritual life. Okay? So, finally, in the last couple of verses, we know that the Father loves the Son. But what validates this statement? What validates that the Father loves the Son? It's that He has given all things into His hands. Okay? What really goes to prove that the Father loves the Son is that all that the Father has belongs to the Son. Okay? So there's no separation when it comes to the authority, when it comes to the, the sovereignty, when it comes to the divinity, all belongs to the Son. Okay? There's no like limitation. It's not like there's, there's a reservation in what the Father has given to the Son. Okay? For God doesn't give the Spirit by measure. Okay? And it goes to show how even the Spirit belongs to the Son because He is one with the Spirit. There's no separation. Yes, each person is distinct, but in Him is the fullness of divinity. There's no limitation in the extent to which the Son has the Spirit. And that's why He can give us the Spirit out of His abundance. Okay, because in him belongs the fullness of the Spirit. Okay, and then the very last word here in verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. Again, there's two equal opposite possibilities. There's no middle ground. Okay, 
You either believe or you don't. Okay? If you believe, you have everlasting life. But if you don't, you shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Okay? There's, there's no middle ground in life. There's no, like, I'm just going to be a, a, a mediocre Christian. I'm either all in or I'm not. Okay? And to say that the wrath of God abides in him, the, the Greek word here is orge, which literally means to be in opposition with God. To be rejecting, like to reject God. And for you to place that judgment on yourself. That's why we spoke about that condemnation is what we cause from our own decisions. So there's no middle ground. Okay? So forgive me, I just took a few extra minutes, but uh, I wanted to at least uh, finish this chapter so that next week we start from uh, verse 30, and then we can get into chapter 4. All right? If you have any comments or questions, you can ask me after we pray. Glory be to God forever. Amen.